Welcome to the Bangor Sports Science Podcast, the official podcast for the School of Psychology and Sports Sciences at Bangor University. My name is Amir Sandhu and I'm the host of this show which aims to provide you with topical insights about sport and exercise science. Whether you are a practitioner, athlete, coach, student or just generally interested in sports science, we have a selection of guests from different backgrounds who are here to share their knowledge. You can listen to this podcast on all available podcast streaming platforms and can also view the video of the podcast on our Bangor Sports Science YouTube channel. The channel link will be in the description, so please do check it out. Please also take time to like, subscribe and share our content. Welcome to the Bangor Sports Science podcast series. Today's episode title is Preventing Injury in Rugby Union and this follows the theme of the science of rugby and in particular we're going to focus about player welfare research in rugby union. Now this information is going to be relevant to coaches, practitioners, players as well as the general population Uh, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Julian Owen. Julian, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks Amir. Now, Julian has a BSc in biochemistry, an MSc in sport physiology, and a PhD in exercise physiology. Uh, He's a lecturer in sport and exercise science in the School of Psychology and Sports Science at Bangor University. Um, Now, before he arrived to Bangor, Julian actually spent eight years working as a physiologist and sports scientist within various performance pathways and professional sports. Now, his research reflects this interest in applied sports science, and he's got ongoing research in player welfare and youth player development in rugby union. So he brings today really a wealth of experience, um, both from an academic and from a pro- professional point of view. So, Julian, these are, this is obviously going to be quite fascinating to hear your insights, having worked in this area for quite a long time. Now, you're, you've got a particular interest in player welfare and prevention of injury. So could you just start by telling telling the viewers and the listeners uh, what injury prevention is and why it's important for rugby. Yeah, I guess probably the best place to start in terms of injury prevention is there was some work done in the 1990s and they came up with almost four stages or four steps of injury prevention. So if I describe those, so step one would be to establish the extent of the particular injury problem in a particular sport. Step two is looking at the etiology or the mechanism. How does the injury happen? Um, And then step three would be to implement some kind of injury prevention strategy. And then step four would be to repeat step one to see if that's had an effect on, on the injury prevalence or injury incidence and so on. So quite often injury prevention is is thought of as step three, which is the injury prevention strategy. So you, you know, you wear a mouth guard, you wear um, sort of protective headgear and things like that, but there's more to it than that. Sometimes we have to establish the extent of the problem and what exactly we need to look to prevent or reduce. And I guess in rugby union specifically, uh, and lots of other rugby codes as well, um, and contact sport codes, that they are relatively injurious sports. Mm. So compared to um, sports like maybe football and hockey, the, the the injury rates are higher. So I guess player welfare and particularly injury prevention are, are very relevant uh, or is very relevant in rugby union. Okay, so in terms of the research that you've done in this area, Julian, um, firstly, what projects have you done and what have been the main findings from those projects? Yeah, so we've been sort of working in this area of sort of player welfare in rugby union now for about five years. Um, 
and we had <clears throat> for four years of that period we, we had a um a study ongoing which i think sarah mentioned in last week's episode looking at injury risk or assessing the injury risk in semi-professional uh, rugby union in the welsh premiership yeah. now most of the injury surveillance work that, that that is out there in the research tends to be in sort of international rugby uh, professional rugby so we decided particularly with the north wales development region being in this area to, to focus on that semi-professional game because quite often it's a stepping stone up to the professional sports. So we wanted to look at injury risk in, in, in that population. Mm. Um, so we would work with the physiotherapists with the team and, and medics and, and also researchers to, to audit uh, all the injuries that happen during matches, all the injuries that happen during training. And then from that information, we can start to paint a picture of what the injury pattern is like. So we can look at what are the general locations of injuries, the regions of injuries. And because we're working with clinical staff as well, we can also look at diagnosis um, of specific injuries, which ones happen more often than others. um, And also how often things like concussions happen. And then something quite interesting that we do is not only look at the rate of injuries, injuries in terms of how often they happen, in terms of when a player is exposed to the sport, we also look at the severity, so how long okay. did they miss from the sport. Um, and then you can look at a product of incidence and severity to look at the overall burden of injury. And surprisingly from that work, what we actually found was that the pattern of injury so the types of injuries, so location, region, and so yeah. on, and the diagnoses were very similar to what you would see in the professional men's game. Okay. Um, so maybe that wasn't so much of a surprise. What was a surprise was that the injury rate was very, very similar as well. So what we know from previous research is that, you know, injury risk reduces as the standard of play reduces. So you're going to for example have more injuries in professional rugby than you are in amateur rugby for example Mm. and in lots of the research that was done in the 90s there was a clear delineation between amateur and semi-professional rugby and the injury risk in the professional game as it was beginning to to roll out what we actually found for the first time was that the the injury rates were very very similar okay um And obviously in the professional game, you have lots of medics, lots of physiotherapists, lots of medical care and support. But within the semi-professional game, although it exists, it exists to a much lower sort of level. So we did sort of throw up the idea that, you know, if the injury rates and the risk of injury is just as great in the semi-professional game, then potentially people need to look at what investment there is for for medical support and so on. Um, in that sort of area of the game. So that's something we've been doing, well, just finished, I guess, uh, over the last sort of four or five years. We've also been looking at kind of some of the sort of risk factors. So it's almost like step two of that sort of stages of injury prevention, where you're looking more at the etiology of injury, maybe the mechanism of injury. So we've had a couple of researchers looking at maybe in a little bit more detail at things like particularly hamstring injuries, looking at some of the risk factors there. We sort of utilize things like um, ultrasound, um, MRI scans to look at how things like muscle stiffness, um, the length of particular muscles in the hamstring can, can either increase or decrease the risk 
uh, of hamstring injuries, which are a particular problem in in team sports. Um, yeah. So and now we're moving on to other types. Of okay. Research. And uh, with the research that you've done with the MRI ultrasound, have has that concluded so that you've actually got recommendations for like coaches or players, or is that still are you still analysing the data? No, I, I guess we we just published the paper in a special edition that came out for the Rugby World Cup. Okay. And we specifically looked at um, hamstring muscle stiffness, passive stiffness. So when the muscle is is not active, mm. what what level of stiffness is in is in the is in the hamstring muscle? And we've also looked at the muscle architecture around the hamstring muscle as well. And we compared two groups. Uh, one was sort of high-level rugby players, amateur players, yep. and the other group was sort of active, um, exercising sort of individuals. Mm. And what we actually found was that the sort of passive muscle stiffness in the um, rugby players was, was greater. Um, and some of the kind of ratios between strength and size of um, the quadriceps were much larger than the hamstring, or that ratio was much greater mm -hmm. than in the other population. And it would kind of suggest that potentially rugby training per se um, and, and, and playing rugby mm -hmm. would sort of emphasize the development more of the quadriceps and the hamstring. And maybe practitioners need to think about ways of uh, loading the hamstrings uh, a lot more particularly during pre-season and maintaining that during the season to potentially try and reduce the the incidence of, of, okay. of hamstring injuries so i guess what we were looking at is we know that the length of the muscle the passive muscle stiffness is a risk factor for hamstring injuries and we what we basically found was potentially some of the those risk factors were higher in people who habitually play high-level amateur rugby. Okay, so just looking at that very simplistically, uh, could you conclude that there's a muscle imbalance going on where, which favours quadricep development um, and that potentially leaves the hamstring vulnerable to injuries? And, and so a way to overcome that is to have specific training for hamstring muscle strength. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of research at the moment going into exercise such as Nordic hamstring exercises and yeah. so on where you have a lengthening of the muscle when it's or the hamstring muscle when it's producing force um, so things like that you know if, if you can incorporate those into a program that's great one of the issues with that type of exercise in particular is that it sort of it quite often athletes are not very keen on adopting those types of yeah exercises because they have a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness it's difficult to fit into a program particularly if there's week on week matches and so on yep. it might interfere with pre-season training if there is too much of that kind of uh, delayed onset muscle soreness as well so actually the implementation of those types of um, interventions are often quite difficult so i think we need a little bit more research around strengthening the hamstring muscle in different ways so isometrically yeah. centrically concentrically and and looking at focusing on that as well that's interesting and, and you did mention about pre-season as well so i suppose there's a role for maximizing hamstring th strength before the season starts so that you know the players aren't kind of starting off on the back foot as it were um and and they've got you know 
comparable development in the quadriceps and the hamstrings as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always going to be a slight imbalance there. It's the size of the imbalance that that, that matters, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah pre-season is the ideal time. And, you know, Saren spoke last week about um, pre-season loading and how important that can be and that it's related potentially to injury risk yeah. in, in, in the in-season. So, yeah, that would be the ideal time right. to do it. And And I guess talking about the implementation of interventions at one of the areas of injury prevention that has definitely developed over the last few years, probably in the last sort of 10 years or so, um, is based on those four stages of injury prevention. Mm. It doesn't take into account context of the setting of the sport, um, of the context of implementation of, of the of the preventative strategy. So there's been a bit of work and that sort of original model, which was developed by Van Mecklen in the 90s, has sort of developed a little bit to include context. So the example I gave with a Nordic hamstring exercise, for example, if you add context into that uh, injury prevention strategy, it probably turns out that coaches aren't very keen on adopting it um, because they know it can affect performance because of the delayed muscle uh, muscle soreness. And athletes don't like doing it because of that muscle soreness. So once you add the context in, you can see how maybe effective that that type of injury prevention strategy is. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, moving forward, then you're starting a project in girls youth rugby, uh, which is obviously an area that's underrepresented in the scientific kind of research domain. Um, So what is the project that you're going to do in, in that population and what outcomes are you looking for? Yeah, the, the, the project is a three-year project. It's funded by World Rugby um, and supported by the Welsh Rugby Union. And as we were doing the work in semi-professional rugby, um, I guess, like I mentioned, the, the rationale for that was the lack of, of data in that population. And over time, we kind of realised that there was this explosion in um, female rugby participation, yeah. particularly at youth level, but very little, if any, data at all on the risk of injury. And what we have to be careful of is, that, you know, there's a lot of media attention at the moment with, with injury risk, particularly concussion risk with yeah. certain sports like rugby. We can't superimpose what happens in the professional or international game onto what happens in the community game on a pitch on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday mm-hmm. morning. So... We know for a fact that the risk of injury decreases with standard of play. It tends to also decrease with, with age or mm-hmm. the younger we get, the less risk there is. So we still felt it was really important to, uh, um, almost the duty of care to sort of describe what that risk is in, yeah. in girls, youth, grassroots rugby, um, particularly with this expansion and, and, and increase in participation. So what we aim to do over three years is um, basically start and finish an injury surveillance project um, where we will look and audit all the injuries that happen in match play um, in girls from the age of seven years old up to 18 years old and specifically at that grassroots level. So we're not looking at performance rugby, we're looking at the types of matches that happen on lots of pitches all around the UK, you know, yeah. on a weekend. Yeah. Um, and we're hoping that what that does is it provides some early information on what the risks are. 
what the pattern of injuries are um, and specifically potentially what the risk of suspected concussion is. Okay, and do you expect um, the findings to be different to the work that you've done in this, you know, in other populations, so, you know, in the semi-professional game? Uh, do you find do you think it'll be similar or do you expect to see some differences? Yeah, we would expect to see a lot lower injury risk. Okay. Um, because obviously the the standard of play, you know, is much higher at semi-professional level compared to that community game. Yeah. You've also got the element of age. So there are elements of, or there are age groups within sort of female community rugby where it's non-contact. So we would expect the risk to be very low um, at that age, at that, those age ranges. Yeah. And we would expect a slight increase in that injury risk as we as we go up the age groups up to under 18, for example. Um, what will be very interesting will be to look at the pattern of injury. So we know, obviously, female athletes are different to male athletes. Yeah. People are finally understanding that that is the case <laughs> at last. So, you know, it will be interesting to see if the pattern of injuries are, are different. Yeah. We hear a lot of anecdotal evidence that concussion or at least suspected concussion and head injuries are more prevalent in in the female game there are lots of potential reasons why that is mm. um, so some of the hypotheses that have been discussed are um, lower neck strength in female athletes compared to males which then gives a tendency for more of those whiplash type injuries yeah. and head on ground contact type injuries Potentially, um, female athletes are more honest, maybe, with with um, reporting of concussion symptoms. So, I guess one thing to sort of note is that is that when people are, um, are, are potentially concussed, they can go through a kind of fairly subjective um, set of questionnaires and, and assessments, ideally done by a clinician. Um, and there's a level of subjectivity there so it's whether females are a little bit more honest in terms mm, of their okay. um, reporting of those symptoms compared to males as well okay and what in females so you mentioned uh, your project's going to be in 7 to 18 year olds so what might the role of the menstrual cycle play on um, you know the occurrence of, of injuries I mean mm. is there is there any evidence or any kind of knowledge out there in terms of at different phases of the mm. menstrual cycle um, the, the profile of the injury mm. or even the risk of injury might differ yeah I think that there has been some work done and it, and it, I think it's in the very initial stages sort of looking at the effect of the menstrual cycle particularly on concussion yeah um, and I think there is some weak associations at the moment that might suggest that different stages of the menstrual cycle might make players more prone to concussion, but definitely to um, potentially the, the, the rehabilitation, it might extend that rehabilitation time right, from concussion. Okay. So there might be different symptomology in terms of uh, intensity and so on that happen there. But, but one of the other things that, that we can do, or one of the other reasons potentially why concussion may be more of a problem in, in female rugby players is because a lot of players maybe are not that experienced. So mm. male players who go through the system probably start quite young. Um, so they have quite, an, quite a long training age, um, you know, by the time they get up to contact rugby. Um, 
female players, you know, it's not unheard of that female players train once and then all of a sudden they're on a rugby pitch yeah. playing on the weekend. Um, so there's potentially a bit of work to do in terms of injury prevention around tackle safety, tackle yeah. technique, yeah. falling and bracing technique and things like that. And, and also going back to, to the point about neck strength and things like that, there's some really interesting research at the moment which suggests that the pattern of muscle activation around uh, the neck, um, there's a slight lag in females compared to males. Okay. So potentially um, that ability to brace just before contact is slightly different yep, um, yep. between males and females, but that's quite an interesting avenue as well. Okay, now um, these technical parts that you're talking about of the game, uh, you know, s skill parts and, and knowing what to do, and, and especially looking at it from a young age, you'd think that you need to target this information to schools, to PE teachers and, and coaches that are involved in teaching rugby at school. So have you got any research going on in, you know, basically working with schools to try and understand what's going on there or how you can influence things there? Yeah, we've, we've just started a study. Again, it's a three-year study. Um, and it's specifically examining ways of preventing concussion in in school sports so this is across genders across different okay. sports um we we get the impression that the education is obviously a key factor yeah but i think it's a little bit of a blank canvas at the moment in so we you would hope that um in the educational system that there are ways of monitoring whether a concussion has happened and you know the new guidelines would would suggest that you recognize any of the symptoms you mm. remove the person from the training pitch or the field yeah. of play um so it's i don't doubt that that kind of government guideline has got through and people are a bit okay. more aware aware of it what we, what we are trying to prevent with concussion though is that second impact syndrome or a concussion that happens too soon after the previous one when the person hasn't fully recovered yep. so prevention in terms of concussion you can potentially prevent the first concussion but maybe the piece of work that we're trying to do is is can you prevent that second right, okay. secondary concussion so yeah. i think education is going to play a big role mm. what we intend to do is in order to inform what kind of education might work is we're looking at sort of developing focus groups, engaging with secondary schools, uh, local education authorities, um, pupils within the school that have experienced the concussion and parents as well, mm. and engage with those people and just get an idea um, of the lived experience. So if you're a physical education teacher and a player has a suspected concussion on the pitch. Are you confident in, in the way that you deal with it? Right, okay. Are you confident in what happens afterwards? Um, so we're really interested to find out some of that information, which might inform some future education. Yeah. We're interested in what the primary and secondary care pathways are. Um, and also there are just some inherent issues around concussion management. So you know, a child might have a concussion in a game of football on a Sunday morning uh, and then turn up to school on a Monday and there's a physical education class and they play in that and they have a subsequent head injury in that class. So how is the school meant to know that that has happened if, yeah. if it's not reported? So there's lots of gaps. There's okay. lots of 
areas of potential policy development that that might need to be worked on but it's i think it's a really really exciting sort of project that we're really looking forward to no definitely i think it's very important as well and i'm just thinking for like you know we might have people listening or watching this podcast who do currently work with children what kind of things could they do like right now because obviously the research is going to take time to Mm. be done and and give the findings but what could somebody do right now to support young people in terms of like you know injury prevention Mm. uh, or even if an injury occurs yeah so there there are some well there is some initial kind of research that suggests that there are things that we can do to reduce the risk of, of head injury and concussion so Regardless of the sport, I mean, um, World Rugby, in conjunction with the Rugby Football Union, developed the Activate Neuromuscular Training Program. Um, and Activate is is available on the World Rugby website um, and also on the RFU website. And it's basically a neuromuscular training program that helps with proprioception or just that sort of knowledge or that ability to understand the position of the body in space and mm. time. Um, there's some neck strengthening exercises and coordination exercises and so on. And there is some evidence to suggest that the incidence of concussion can reduce if these programs are, are, are implemented. And, you know, elements of, of the program could be incorporated into, you know, a warm-up or the initial part of a training session yeah. and so on, so that it becomes a regular kind of staple and, and, and it might work. One of the other things is wear a mouth guard and... There's not much evidence to suggest that it's going to have an effect, but there's some evidence from, I think, ice hockey in Canada, where just, you know, there's an association between people wearing mouth guards tend to have less concussion. So, mm. you know, at the moment, it's not 100% mandatory that people have to wear mouth guards in rugby union, but um, yeah, definitely wear a mouth guard. And then I think the the other key point is is to follow the government guidelines in terms of recognize and remove or if in doubt sit them out so if somebody has uh, a blow to the head um, or a suspected blow to the head and they show any of the signs and symptoms associated with concussion they should be sat out immediately and then i guess the advice is to 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 you know if it's depends on the severity but seek medical help after that whether right, it's a yeah, gp yeah, or sense. or yeah. the accident and emergency yeah. department yeah. so so that would be the initial sort of advice at the moment i guess what we're interested in is and i think it's where the gaps exist in terms of people's knowledge is how to manage that once it's happened mm. so obviously in rugby there's 21 day sort of period where you where you shouldn't be playing but it's there's some emerging evidence now as to what you should be doing whilst you are recovering um so people used to completely rest initially but there is some evidence to suggest that some very light exercise like walking is beneficial to rehabilitation so but there's a big gap there where where just people's awareness of of the management of of concussion needs to be looked at Mm. So, for example, we hear a lot about return to play in professional sports. And if a player is concussed and that's diagnosed through uh, the SCAT-5 questionnaires, then they will go through a process of return to play and they might even reset to the beginning again if they fail any part of uh, the process. Obviously, in in community sport and school sport, it's not possible to Mm. have that level of support. 
So yeah, I think it's 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 really important area is to have some general guidelines for the public in terms of how to how to manage yeah. those symptoms. Yeah. And it's not just return to play or return to sport. When we're talking about children in the school setting, it's also returning to learn. And we need some kind of guidelines as to, you know, what that might look like. Mm. It's going to look different for each individual, but yeah. Yeah. we need some kind of advice for schools and special educational needs coordinators within schools as to how they manage the whole yeah. return to learn process. You know, when full-time school, is it done on a graduated return to school? Do they do certain activities and not other activities? Do they take part in assessments and so on? So I think there's a there's a huge piece of work to do around the management of concussion and returning to sport and returning to school and yeah. learning. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's I mean, it's it seems you're going to be busy for quite a long time yeah. ahead. You've got a lot <laughs> of important um, research areas, and I think um, you know it, it, we've just seen today how many gaps there are. And I think hopefully, you know, with, with the research that you're doing and, and also the teams around the world that are probably working in a similar area, once that information is out there, a set of recommendations, clear recommendations can be provided to people that are working with, you know, um, youth players uh, to kind of to get good practice in from mm. an early age. And, and then that will hopefully carry through as they progress through the ranks as well. Yeah. Julian, it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for coming in today. Pleasure. Have you got um, any social media presence that people can kind of, if they want to know a little bit more about your work, where would they go to find information? Yeah, I guess they can look on the Bangor website um, okay. and there's links to the work that we're doing there. Um, I'm also on X or Twitter, as yeah. it was known. Uh, so obviously you can put that into the description. Yeah, so, and that's at Julian Owen PhD. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, are you on LinkedIn? Yes. Yeah, people can get you, yeah. to follow you on there as well. Okay, and of course, yeah, if uh, viewers, listeners go on to our Banger Sports Science webpage. You can see the staff profiles. Julian's will be on there, and it will in indicate all of his uh, research interests as well. So yeah, Julian, thank you so much uh, for coming in today, and uh, we wish you all the best for your future research projects. And you'll have to come in again when they're done to come and tell us about what the outcomes are. Yeah, glad to do that. Yeah, brilliant. All right, thanks very much, Julian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Bangor Sports Science podcast. We hope you found it informative and enjoyable and look forward to bringing you more episodes. Please like, share and subscribe to our content. And until next time, goodbye 